Um, my name is uh, Gary Brock. I work with a group called uh, Christian Missionary Fellowship, CMF uh, International. Um, my wife and I spent uh, 30 years uh, in Africa, living mostly in Kenya, some in Ethiopia, and helping other teams uh, get set up there. Uh, for the last uh, four and a half years, we've lived here in the United States, but uh, spend a lot of times on airplanes and in Asia, uh, trying to uh, empower and help some uh, teams get started there, uh, doing some uh, community health evangelism and other forms of uh, development. And so we're happy to be here today uh, to share kind of where we are in the process and things uh, we've learned. If any of you were in the room uh, just a little bit ago to hear Florence speak, uh, anything I'm going to share with you, I probably learned from her. Uh, we worked together for many years in the, the mid-90s, uh, up until just a couple of years ago, very closely, and we still collaborate on some projects uh, together in Nairobi and, and uh, Ethiopia. So we are very happy to uh, be here and, and share this morning, and uh, want to talk a little bit about uh, poverty and urban slums and what we think God might be wanting to do to help people become who he created them to be and help them discover who they are in Christ and all that that, that means. Uh, so that's kind of where, where we're going to go this morning. Uh, but before we begin, uh, let me just uh, say a word of prayer to start. Father, this morning we're here to uh, just become all you've created us to be. Uh, teach us, show us, lead us, guide us how to do that. And we just ask now that you would open our minds and our hearts to the things that you might be saying. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to begin this morning by uh, talking a little bit about um, maybe God's agenda uh, on earth and what he uh, would like to do and things he might want to be accomplishing. And I want to begin by reading a little bit from the book of Luke. This is from chapter 4, uh, verses 18 uh, to 21. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is a, a key and important uh, scripture for a number of reasons. But one, this is a little bit like Jesus' inaugural address. He just had come from being tempted by Satan. He was beginning his earthly ministry, and he was laying out his agenda. Here's what I've come for. Here's what I'm going to do. And this, this part of, the, uh, of God's plan begins now. And this is what Jesus began doing. He laid it out for him, and immediately if we read in the book of Luke, uh, he, was, he was out proclaiming the kingdom of God. He was out healing the sick. Uh, he was out... Uh, uh, cleansing people of sin, casting out demons, and he, he did that in a, in a huge way. And not only did he do that, 
he also then began laying out to his disciples and his followers, this is what I'm expecting of you. I'm expecting you to go out and cast out demons. You to go out and proclaim uh, recovery for those who are oppressed, uh, to release the prisoners. And, and he sent them out and they did that. Uh, we can go through the next few chapters in the book of Luke and find first he sent out the 12, then he sent out 72, and his instructions were always the same. And if people held him up and say, whoa, stay around here, we like what's going on, he said, no, I have to go to other towns and uh, proclaim that the kingdom of God is at hand. And by kingdom, I think he was in saying all of these things that he had just talked about. He was talking about, you know, completely... Uh, restoring the earth to what God had intended in the beginning. And now we know that that won't be accomplished uh, completely until Jesus comes again. But part of God's plan from the very beginning, uh, even in creation, was Jesus to begin restoring a broken earth, uh, a, a world that was broken in every way possible. And uh, so this, is, this was a very significant time uh, in the scriptures and a very significant way for us to begin getting a handle and a framework for thinking about poverty and how God might view poverty, what he looks at there. We know that uh, even John the Baptist, who had been saying, hey, the Messiah is coming, uh, he sent a question when Jesus started doing all these things. Uh, he sent his disciples to go talk to Jesus and saying, hey, are you really the one that I've been announcing or not? And uh, in Luke uh, 7, uh, 20 to 22, Jesus sent back the same answer on these things here. When John asked the question, are you the Messiah? You know, Jesus could have answered with a, an easy yes or no. But he said, go tell John the captives are being set uh, free, the blind are seeing, uh, the kingdom of God is being uh, preached uh, to the end of the earth. And that was his answer. So I think part of our job then is the orders we've received from Jesus to go begin uh, proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand to helping the sick, the poor, the blind, everybody to be restored back into that relationship that God intended in the beginning. Too many times I think we in the West have thought of poverty and we think of an absence of things. And poverty is a whole lot more than that. Uh, poverty is a total oppression of the human spirit in every way, shape, and form. It's that brokenness uh, due to sin uh, that causes people to be trapped. And uh, we had a question uh, uh, in the earlier class with Florence. Somebody asked, well, you know, if God's presence is in people and, and uh, you know, they have the power to discover things for themselves, uh, why do we need to go? Well, it's because of sin. People are blinded to God's truth. They're held down almost by a, like a steel belt, steel trap. And I wondered this for, for many years. You know, There are such simple solutions available to people uh, who are suffering and hurting and uh, living in extreme, absolute poverty. Why don't they see those answers? Well, Satan has blinded them to the truth. They can't see. They can't, can't experience everything that God has. And then it, it becomes a little more personal when we start thinking of this model <clears throat> because we start thinking about the fact that um, 
you know, it, it's a danger for us to start thinking, well, maybe we have the answers because we're in the West and we have a little more. Well, that's just not, not true. We're broken by sin in the same way those that maybe we're going to seek to serve. And we need to be able to understand that the answer comes in our relationship with God. How many of you have uh, read the book, When Helping Hurts? It's becoming popular. It's a good one. I would recommend it. It's becoming my second Bible for the time being. For many years, uh, Walking with the Poor uh, by Bryant Myers was my second Bible, but it's kind of being replaced by When Helping Hurts uh, by some guys named uh, Fickert and Corbett. But uh, this is a very good book, and they give an illustration of what this looks like. When the world was created, it was created good. But we know sin got loose in the world, and it broke everything. It broke the relationship between God and man. It broke the relationship of man with himself and between man and others and man and creation. And therefore, everything was tainted, destroyed. Economic systems are unjust. Social systems are oppressive. Uh, Political systems are corrupt. And religious systems become self-serving. So everything is broken, but Jesus' purpose in coming back to earth was to fulfill God's intention by restoring those relationships. So the thing we need to think about in in terms of poverty is that a lot of times um, reducing that poverty is simply restoring relationships. Now, how does that apply to uh, maybe a Western nation uh, that has things? Well, think about us here in the West. You look around. Our relationships are totally messed up, all of us. Spiritually, uh, God to man, you know, our country, uh, uh, it seems like we've almost lost some of the culture wars. Um, You know, people are depressed. The drug companies are making a whole lot of money these days days, uh, by helping us out with antidepressants. There's a whole lot of uh, social injustice uh, that goes on. Uh, Still ethnic tensions and and racism, it becomes a... Uh, you know, a political issue. Uh, Economic systems are unjust. Uh, The poor suffer uh, that way. Our relationships are broken. Our families, uh, divorce has probably touched every one of us, uh, most likely in in many ways. Um, It's a tough thing. We have to go about this understanding that, hey, we're one beggar trying to help another find bread. Maybe we've discovered a little bit of Jesus' truth and a little bit of Jesus' love, and we want to walk alongside our brothers and sisters no matter what they're suffering. In an urban slum, there are um, characteristics that uh, they have that are different maybe than what we've found, but if we can help them understand Jesus, who God created them to be, who they are in Christ, uh, they can begin to discover uh, and start their journey uh, back toward wholeness like God intended in the beginning. And so that's the framework that uh, uh, we use. This has been a a quick Reader's Digest condensed version uh, of some of the the biblical principles that uh, we found important uh, to begin addressing uh, poverty. And uh, so as we move forward uh, thinking about that, 
We need to begin uh, by thinking we could almost call Christian community development or any kind of community development kingdom development. A task God has given us on this earth to begin working to restore his kingdom back to what he intended in the very beginning. Um, This can be big things. It can be little things. It needs to begin every day uh, before we step out the doors of our house, and we need to be looking around us with that mindset. How does God want to use me today to make this world and his kingdom a better place, what he intended in the beginning? How does he want us to fight injustice? How does he want us uh, to help the poor? What does it mean to walk alongside my neighbor? And uh, from giving a cup of cold water uh, to maybe uh, sponsoring a child, whatever that means in in our lives, uh, we need to be aware of that. Now, how do we begin addressing some of these problems uh, that are in the world? When you think of urban poverty and think of some of the massive slums in the world, it becomes frightening. Uh, and rather scary. When we first started wandering around some of the big slums in, in Africa, uh, you know, with almost a million people in uh, some of them, it was overwhelming. And walking through there, you know, it was, it, we were like saying, whoa, God, what can we do about this? There's nothing that we have uh, or have experienced that make us think, hey, there's anything we can do to be of any good here. After all, the big big groups, the United Nations governments have put billions, if not hundreds of billions of dollars uh, to use here. Um, why are you directing us in this direction? So it took a lot of prayer, a lot of soul searching, a lot of trying to figure out, God, what do you want us to do here? And uh, then we'd go back to Luke 4 and see what Jesus did, what he was commanding, how he did it and uh, took a lot of faith uh, to step out and begin. So what was our approach? Well, we've begun using a program called Community Health Evangelism. It's really not a a stiff formal program as much as good biblical principles of development. And uh, uh, those that are holistic uh, see people uh, as whole people uh, made up of physical, spiritual, social, emotional uh, sides uh, to all of us, and it took me a long time to get my head around this. You know, I'm a good uh, American. We like to compartmentalize things. It makes more sense. Um, I'm not an engineer, but my engineering friends uh, uh, help me see the world in a very nice, orderly fashion. Well, not everybody sees the world this way. And when we were in Africa, out in the rural areas, we lived in an area that was very remote and uh, didn't have any medical clinic. If somebody got seriously ill, uh, our choice was to try and uh, help fix it ourselves or uh, help put people in the car and drive for four hours. It wasn't that far, but uh, the roads weren't very good. Well, sometimes, uh, sometimes we'd put people in the car. Usually that happened, uh, especially when people were uh, either bleeding very badly or uh, pregnancy issues. Uh, I didn't want to test my uh, non-professional doctoring skills in uh, some of those cases. Um, I came out, 
came out pretty good uh, overall. I had uh, three babies born in my car, uh, but unfortunately I had three people die in the car on the way to the hospital as well. Occasionally I'd get brave and uh, want to sew people up. This one little boy uh, was out herding his goats and they were getting attacked by a buffalo. So being the good uh, Maasai warrior that he was, he stepped up and fought the buffalo. Well, he got rolled around pretty good on the ground uh, by the, the buffalo with you know, horns, but he survived. He was uh, bruised and scuffed up, but he had a huge cut uh, over his eye. Well, here was the way my thinking always went. Here's the cut over the eye. Four hours in the, the car one way, or do I make an attempt at sewing this thing up? So my first attempt, I started sewing here, sewed clear into the middle, big flap of skin left over, no problem, you just cut it off. Um, this little boy to this day has this huge scar there. And if I was in the U.S., you know, I would have been sued many times over. But this kid is proud. He has something to talk about to his warrior buddies. Hey, you see this? This is where I fought off the buffalo and saved, you know, our family livelihood. I'm a, I'm a tough guy. So uh, it was hard. But slowly we began to realize there was something else going on that we didn't understand. People would show up at our house. Well, we were helping the community to start a clinic, which got caught in politics, which made it take a little longer than uh, we would have liked. I would have been happy to have a doctor there, um, you know, as soon as possible. But anyway, people would come, and then we had a choice. We could say, okay, you've got a headache. Well, we can give you some aspirin, and then sit down here and, and let us pray with you. And we did both of those things, and we were thinking, that's good holistic medicine. You know, we're trusting God, but we're trusting him also with his uh, creativity, uh, with medicine that, you know, he's allowed people to uh, uh, discover and put together. But there was something else going on. People would say, oh, thank you, thank you, we, we appreciate it. But they'd stay there and keep talking. And it took us a while to realize they were going to another level that we didn't really understand or know anything about. Pretty soon they'd get around to, you know, uh, my cows got into this guy's garden over here and, and uh, ate everything up, and uh, we think he put a curse on us. And so it's caused us this physical ailment that we have. And so we need to know how to, you know, what to do to, to get rid of that. So our first one was, whoa, let's, let's pray. And uh, God, what's going on here? But soon we began to see that most people in the world have a much more holistic view of life than we do. And everything is tied together. Uh, couldn't be separated out. Uh, you know, what happened to people, um, you know, spiritually and, and relationally uh, affected them physically. And it affected them economically. It affected them socially. And they didn't sort these different parts out uh, like we do. And so there was this whole holistic thing going on that was important to begin to understand. And that rural work was very good preparation for us uh, when we started wandering around uh, kind of aimlessly at first uh, in the slums because it didn't take long to figure out, yeah, there's a lot of different things going on, but everything affects everything else. Um, you know, stuff going on economically, Socially, politically, um, you know, individually, physically, it's all tied together. And one little part affects another. 
And it also didn't take us long to figure out we don't have a clue how to fix this. I mean, we barely are starting to begin to understand it, but what in the world do we do? We don't know. So that's why uh, we learned from Dr. Florence and uh, some others uh, the community approach. And that's why we ended up liking community health evangelism. Basically, uh, when we talk about CHE or community health evangelism, we talk about development and not relief. Relief is necessary. Relief is necessary when you have a tsunami, when you have an earthquake, uh, when there's a disaster, that there needs to be a response immediately or more and more people are going to die. Development usually takes place over a longer period of time in normal, everyday activity, helping people discover one little bit at a time uh, who God created them to be. It depends on mature Christian leadership. Uh, the very reason we're doing this in the first place, again, is to help people know who they are in Christ, that they are worth something, that they do have uh, resources. Multiplication. Uh, this depends on one person beginning to get a piece of a discovery and sharing that with somebody else who shares with somebody else until the whole neighborhood uh, is transformed. And then one community can look at another community and say, wow, look at that. Where'd that garbage pile go in that community? What did they do with it? Why are their kids wearing school uniforms? We want some of that. And so it can slowly start to spread. Integration of physical and spiritual. I've talked a little bit about that already. Uh, CHE is a unique program in that uh, there are physical and spiritual um, lessons prepared. Uh, they can be taught together, sometimes one lesson drawing out two principles. Um, the first time I saw a CHE worker doing this, they were teaching about clean water. Uh, they discovered that um, the people were sick from a lot of waterborne diseases, so they were talking about <clears throat> if you take in this dirty water, you're going to get sick. So you need to boil it, filter it, uh, do something uh, to make it more palatable. Well, immediately and seamlessly, they you know, transferred into, and also there are spiritual things that you don't need to be taking in. Like if you go down the road a block here and start watching the pornographic material, it's going to lead you to other activities that are going to make your life sick and miserable. And so drawing those spiritual and physical uh, conclusions uh, out of one lesson are very possible. Or maybe you teach a physical lesson, then a spiritual lesson, and, and they tie together. Sustainable resources, or we might say use of local resources. And this is critical. A lot of times people who don't seem to have much uh, materially or maybe spiritually, they're kind of uh, feeling inferior, like maybe God doesn't like us very much. Uh, he hasn't given us much. So we have to wait for outsiders who he loves or likes a little bit more than us to come in and help the problem. And usually in the past, outsiders have been more than willing to come in with truckloads of money or resources and help. But in reality, what that does sometimes is actually just reinforce the idea in people's minds that they aren't good enough, that they can't do it, that God hasn't given them anything uh, to work on their, their problems, which is absolutely not true. 
And sometimes the best way to begin is to begin by first helping people think of their resources and identify what God has given them. And uh, then begin looking at some of the problems around and then helping them see how this, these two can come together and uh, be applied. Uh, there's an approach that's called ABCD or Asset-Based Community Development, and the whole purpose behind it is to help the community begin to gain some confidence before they begin trying to tackle uh, some of the big problems uh, that they face. So local resources, thinking about that as a, a very important issue. Teaching, not doing. Uh, we Americans like to do things. It's very satisfying when we can do something. We can go home and say, wow, look what I did. I got my hands dirty today, and I fixed something. But a lot of times, being patient, sitting, waiting, uh, even even the teaching method is critical. Um, the CHE program uses a teaching method called LEPSIS, which is a learner-centered program that depends on drawing information out of people, not lecturing and giving the answers. And again, it's all tied together with helping people discover, you know, when you're sitting in a group, somebody comes up with an answer, wow, you just came up with a, you know, a real gem. That person begins to understand, whoa, God has given me something. There is something I know. There is something I can do uh, about my community. I can help my kids. I can help my family. And so even the teaching method helps people begin this discovery process. Uh, a lot of the, the focus is on prevention uh, rather than cure. Um, this is an important part, again, to help people, uh, one, with the resources they have, uh, make the most of them. A lot of times uh, in the little clinic that we help start, even in the rural areas, uh, the people came to the clinic for diseases that were totally preventable, um, either malaria where mosquito nets could have worked or, or draining some swampy areas. Uh, vaccinations, uh, very simple to prevent some diseases, taking care of water. And so there's just uh, economically it makes more sense to help people prevent disease. Rather than getting the disease, then somebody has to pay for you know, facilities, medicine, doctors, and people can waste a, a, a large amount of their resources on paying for something that is totally preventable. And so that's one of the other emphasis that we have in the CHE program. Then the critical thing is community ownership. And this is one that uh, uh, I can't emphasize enough. When we started wandering around in, in the slums, burning up some shoe leather and shoe rubber, uh, just going from one end to the other, listening, trying to see what was going on, we were working in one slum called Kibera that's over a million people in about a square mile uh, in Nairobi. And I went home one day and, and told my wife, Linda, you know, I can stand at one project or church and throw a rock in any direction and hit another project or church. And I see these big vehicles coming with important people getting out and, and having a, a meeting and, and uh you know, declaring what they're going to do. What's going on here? Why is there no change going on? And we began to see buildings that were seemingly sitting empty, and we'd ask people, what went on here? Well, we're not exactly sure, but some people came one day and said they were going to help us start a, a community center and, and nursery school, and uh, 
Did they do it? Well, yeah, it happened for a while. Our kids even went there for a little bit. Well, then what happened? Well, one day they disappeared and said, you know, the money was finished and now it was our project. And they were all over the place. And so people kind of said, what just happened? Here came this flurry of activity, uh, well-intentioned, but kind of uh, uh, ill-conceived and misguided, and nothing happened. There was absolutely zero uh, community ownership or even real involvement. Um, I kind of like to talk about, uh, there's four questions that I've kind of learned to ask uh, of ourselves uh, first as we cautiously stepped into uh, trying to work among the urban poor. And it, with any projects that are going on, we like to ask, firstly, who thought of this project? Where did this idea come from? Did it originate and come from the local community, local people? Or was this the idea from some outsider like ourselves who were walking through and said, oh, you know, these people are walking a long ways to get water. Why don't we put a well here? These people need a well. And there are many times that that's what we're tempted to do. But it needs to originate with people or it's not going to last. And it will probably be wrong. As much as that hurt my ego... Uh, saying, hey, this isn't that hard. I can see what's wrong here. Um, It needs to originate with local people. The second one is, who implemented the project? In the 60s, 70s, and 80s, it was very popular to go and sit and talk with people about their felt needs. But then the development agencies, after they talked with people, they'd, they'd get a list. Okay, we know the felt needs of the people. We heard it from them. It wasn't our idea. But then, bam, immediately the development agencies would go in and begin this project. And again, the local people would say, what just happened? We were under a tree drinking tea, talking about you know, our, our needs, and the next thing we know, there's this building going up. And uh, no participation at all. And then again, no ownership and nothing lasting. The third question then is, who is actually running this project? Sometimes we in the West you know, will listen let people hear an idea, help them implement it, but then maybe we've had just enough influence to make it impossible for local people to run with local resources. So the solution, we take it over from the outside and begin running it, saying, oh, but it was their program, they thought of it, and they started it even. But pretty soon, because of uh, uh, some of the things we've done, we find ourselves uh, running the project. And then the fourth one, and this is critical, and we could spend all day talking about this. If all of the foreign resources, if any involved, were withdrawn today, would the project keep going in some form? In some form. Now, the mo- money is not a bad thing, but it's a very dangerous thing. And uh, Satan uses that a lot of times as his tool. But right now, um, I can tell you, and I'm going to in a little bit, about uh, some projects in Nairobi, and uh, there are foreign churches helping partner, but because the first three steps are, have been done, the, the idea, uh, the implementation, the running of the program is being done by local people, they own these projects. Now, if some of the money that was helping with schools was withdrawn, would it look ugly? Yeah. You know, next year when it came time for a new classroom and there wasn't any, You might end up with 100 kids in a room. But 
the thing is, this isn't our school. You know, the school that's there now, the local people own it. They run it. And uh, recently when there were some riots that went on in Nairobi and windows were being broken and buildings were being burned, the parents formed a ring around this school. And even though they were from different ethnic groups, they said, nobody's hurting this school. This is our school. This is for our kids. We're not burning this building. Go burn somewhere else, but not here. This is ours. And they were fierce about it. And these were people who uh, uh, sometimes don't get along very well at all. And so that was uh, an impressive uh, thing to see and impressive to know, hey, this isn't ours. Now, how does this work? How would we ever begin implementing this? I want to talk just a little bit about uh, that. Che begins with a training team. Uh, it could be uh, outsiders. A lot of times in, in rural areas it is. When we first were beginning in Nairobi, we thought we were going to be a training team uh, of mainly North American missionaries who were going to help uh, in one of the slums where we'd been asked to, to go uh, do something. But our Kenyan brothers and sisters said, you know, it would be a lot better if you acted as a trainer of training teams. And so we uh, talked with churches, other community organizations, and, and did uh, uh, a little bit like uh, Dr. Florence said. We said, give us five people uh, from your church or from your organization, and we will help uh, equip you knowing how to enter a community and get a community mobilized. So we essentially became the trainer of training teams. Uh, a training team uh, then can go into a community. There's all kinds of vision seminars. And these don't have to be fancy things. I mean, we can get out the textbooks if we need to and come up with all kinds of, of surveys and, and you know, cross-matching data and information. But you can also go sit and drink tea. When I arrived in Africa, there was somebody who'd been there for 40 years, very effective, and I said, what do I need to do? Where do I need to start? They said, become a tea drinker. I thought, what? What are you talking about? What they were telling me was go sit and listen. Um, maybe that was partly because I was 24 years old and they saw right off, whoa, you've got a lot of learning to do. You're, you're not just green, you're chartreuse. You're bright green. <laughs> so we, we drank tea. But this can happen in going into a slum community. You sit, you listen, you drink tea. Pretty soon you hear four or five people saying the same things. Our kids aren't in school. They're getting further and further behind. You know, the politicians and the business people's kids are in the best schools. They pass the tests. They get into the best high schools. Our kids are behind, and their life is even going to be worse than ours. So then you can say, you know, you're about the fifth person that's told me my kids aren't in school. What if we all get together to drink tea and talk about this? And slowly then the community can come together. They can say, wow, there's other people that are concerned about this just like I am. Uh, what can we do about it? And little by little, uh, you know, the training team then can begin to say, why don't we hold a vision seminar for the whole community? If there's four or five of you, maybe there's more. And then begin slowly sorting out what the community thinks is a real problem and what they're willing to act on is a critical step. You know, if you could just go say, hey, what are your problems? You'll get a, you know, a laundry list of all kinds of things going on. But what really is, is bothering people to the point that, you know, if they can figure out what to do next, they'll take that next step and actually implement 
some kind of a program, whether it's schools or, or water, whatever is critical and burdening them to the point that they can move ahead to do something. And again, well, why would uh, a training team or somebody have to do this? Because people have been blinded by Satan to seeing you know, anything around them that's a possibility. It's helping them spiritually, physically begin to discover things. So the training team can begin doing uh, that. Um, after maybe the, the community saying, we want to start a school. Well, we can't call together you know, 200 people every time we want to know what the next step is. Maybe you could choose a, a committee or a group of movers and, and shakers, people who are natural leaders in the community and seen as leaders. Uh, whatever form that takes, every country is different. Africa is totally different from China when it comes from choosing community leaders. That's totally different from Afghanistan. Uh, it, it doesn't look the same uh, anywhere. And that's one danger uh, that scares us about Che. People think they get it. Here's uh, you know, some quick solutions. Well, it's different. It's about people and uh, how they're going to work together. And it's not going to be the same. It's going to be slow. It's going to be messy. Uh, because that's how we human beings are. Um, once that begins to happen, the committee uh, can begin making a, a plan how they're going to work. Uh, the committee chooses some CHE workers. These are community health evangelists. Now, again, in China, it's community development trainers. In Afghanistan, community development educators. The government's there. Don't like seeing that word evangelists or uh, other things, but they do the same things including teaching the same religious biblical material. Um, so it, it does uh, work. These workers, community health evangelists, are trained in how, on prevention of disease, how to pe help people come up with solutions. Uh, they go into the homes. Then not only do they help, like we talked about boiling water. That might be one lesson. But then they can begin listening. Whoa, we're also starting to see everybody has scabies. So they can go back to their committee and training team and say, hey, everybody has scabies. What can we do about that? So then the training team can be the resource team to help say, okay, here's what you can do. Uh, local resource, get some you know, clothes washing powder and, and corn cobs and have the you know, kids scrub their hands uh, every day and wash their clothes and don't allow sleepovers from other families with other kids. And uh, you, know, you can get rid of scabies. And then they're always listening. But they're also doing uh, spiritual teaching as well. Lessons they've learned from the training team. Uh, the Chase uh, visits to the community and then back to the committee, then can begin to result in some larger projects. Uh, say water. Well, yeah, it's a problem. We're, we're doing little things, but what we really need is either, you know, at this point our community has, has become empowered. We can now go to the government and say, hey, you're not delivering water to us like you are everywhere else in town. Why do those rich guys get water and we don't get water here? Now, in the beginning, before they were organized, before they were a group, people from the slums don't get heard. You know, they're oppressed. They're rejected. Nobody's going to listen to somebody going into a government office, uh, you know, as an individual or two walking in from Mathari. But if the whole community is together, and especially if it's around election time, people start to pay attention. And this community can start learning, hey, you know, we do have some, some rights. We're citizens just like everybody else. And uh, just because they 
don't think we're very good doesn't mean that we can't demand our rights for services. Or maybe a bigger project like a, a bigger school, uh, whatever it might be that that community is working on, uh, problem, uh, projects can start coming out of there. <clears throat> Excuse me. The training team can act as a resource then, helping the community to know where they need to go. One example of that was um, recently, you know, the last term of President Bush, he gave a lot of money for HIV AIDS, for antiretrovirals and other help. Local people didn't know where to go to access it. And I was very pleased because a lot of times you hear about government big initiatives with money given. You never see where that goes, ever. Well, in this case, we did, and we knew where they were. Um, all the people had to know is you go, you know, you had to go to the infectious disease hospital, and they were there. You could go uh, to Doctors Without Borders. They were there. And uh, we could just help the committee and community know, hey, you can go there. That's where the uh, medicine is available, and you can get it. So a training team a lot of times is just a resource to help people know the next steps uh, to take that they're working on. And then multiplication begins to take place. I mentioned that. And the whole process is surrounded by God's word, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus. Now, what might this look like in a community like the Mathari Valley, where uh, we are doing some work, partnering with a group called Missions of Hope International uh, that's led by a lady named uh, Mary Kamau? The Che community, this community has come together They've identified some problems, begun working on them. Uh, the churches have been involved right from the, the beginning. And uh, they've started schools. That was the first project that uh, uh, the community wanted to start. And this was kind of a point of entry for community health evangelism as well. Because people wanted school so badly, they were willing to do a lot of work on that. And it was very easy then to get a parents committee. Once you had a parents committee, the parents committee could become the core of the community committee. And so this was a, a way to, to begin talking about other things. Okay, your kids are in school now. What's going on? Well, they're getting mugged and beat up uh, by the youth gangs every day on the way to and from school. What can you do about that? Well, we can find something better for the youth to do. And so they did. And uh, there's youth groups that are now collecting trash, build a little community center, I bought a, a television. This was right before one of the World Cups. Charged money then for people to come in and watch. And so they don't, they don't mug anybody anymore, at least from their community. Maybe the neighboring community, but not theirs. Uh, no jobs. Microenterprise. Um, that was a, another thing that pretty soon came high up on the list. You know, we don't have work. And we would, uh, you know, very much like to, uh, to work. And so... Uh, small loans. They began forming together, saving their money, pooling it, giving loans. Uh, then uh, we've had some folks who were able to come alongside and increase uh, the pot. And that's a very rapidly growing program that is producing a lot of sustainability. Uh, uh, all kinds of different things going on. And it's led to five new churches planted in the area in the last uh, five years. There's about 1,300 people uh, in attendance, and they're growing. Three teaching points that have flowed out of these community meetings. The Chase going to house, uh, houses sharing have led to small Bible study groups that are leading to more churches. Uh, ten schools. And again, Mathari Valley is big. A million people. 800,000 people. But it's, the government has divided it into ten administrative centers. And that's where it went from one end to the other because the neighbors would say, whoa, 
Why are they getting that? Why can't we have that? Well, it led to a perfect timing for uh, going and helping them begin to develop. Uh, there's 4,500 kids in school uh, and growing. Four groups that are meeting for people living with AIDS. This was a huge stigma uh, when we first started there. Nobody wanted to talk about it, but it was affecting everybody. Uh, probably 40 to 45% of the people were either HIV positive or living with AIDS. Now there's four outspoken, powerful groups that are helping each other, standing up for each other's rights, and uh, strong advocates. Uh, and there's 400 people uh, plus in those groups. Uh, six fully functioning uh, CHE committees uh, going on there, and 700 loans have been given out for people uh, to start uh, small businesses. And this is growing uh, rapidly as well. So we're very excited to see uh, uh, what's going on. Individual lives are being changed and transformed, and it, it's spreading, it's growing. And the communities are uh, definitely improving. And so we're excited to uh, uh, you know, see what God has done in that area. Uh, okay, maybe we better stop and see if there's any questions uh, before I go on here. Yes? Where did you get the teachers for the school? Well, um, when we uh, started this, there were, there were a lot of teachers. The government had put a freeze on hiring all of the teachers that they had trained, uh, like I think for five years. They weren't able to hire teachers that they were sending to school. So there was a, a glut of teachers in the country, trained teachers. And so we've been able to hire those. It's been a little harder recently because the government has started hiring again. But uh, for our way of thinking, we don't even understand what unemployment means. Uh, in Kenya, there are teachers all over, people who've been trained as teachers looking for jobs. It's not difficult to find uh, teachers. Now, maybe some good teachers but, uh, or committed teachers, but they're available. Uh, they're there. Yes? Well, at this point, uh, our group has just been addressing uh, those needs on a case-by-case -case basis. Part of the reason is there was, there is a big government facility addressing uh, some of the special needs on the uh, right on the edge of Mathare. But what we've heard recently is it's it's not big enough and not able to handle uh, everything that's there. So they're in the process of talking about that in their community committees, even as we speak. Yes. Unfortunately, I don't have any easy answers for that. And when we started, we started with some of those same groups, and we went along with them slowly. But eventually, we know in their minds they were thinking, yeah, they're telling us local resources, but we know there's something here. And when it wasn't forthcoming, slowly they dropped out. The best thing we've seen that works the most is to actually take some leaders from a community where it is working. Um, 
either some of the community leaders, some of the, the CHE leaders, and have them go and talk to the community about why it's better, what's going on, what they've done, and that's been the most effective thing that we've seen that we could do. Uh, but every now and then you still get a community that say, you guys are crazy. If you just wait a little longer, somebody will come along and give money. But we've also seen people inspired. We did a, a vision seminar for CHE, and, and people were negative. They didn't want to hear it much about it. The next week, we brought some people from a community that totally convinced them, no, this is okay. This is going to work. We took the uh, chairman of the CHE committee. We took a local pastor, and we took Mary Kamau, who was the leader of this project. It was significant that they were able to say, we're all from different churches, because sometimes the churches you know, get in a little fight or jealous or who's going to control this and get the money. But they were able to say, no, we're all together. This is our community. We're working together. And they actually convinced uh, some people to, to send people for a, to form a training team. If anybody would like information about community health evangelism, I have a few booklets, and there's a book downstairs on Global Chain Network and Neighborhood right. Transformation. There's actually whole seminars going on that go into detail. I've just touched on it as a, you know one strategy for reaching an urban slum. But... We like to use this as our core wherever we, we go in, in the world. Okay, thank you very much. If you have any more questions, we'd be glad to try and answer.